John chapter 3. Yeah, better. Okay. John chapter 3 and verses 1 through 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we draw before you this morning to hear your word, to hear you uh, speak, Lord. And so we ask that you would bear witness by your spirit to the scriptures. Open our eyes and our ears and soften our hearts and help us, Lord, to understand the necessity of the new birth. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. And as we began last week, we saw that John, this section of John, John chapter 3, is very closely tied to verses 23 through 25 in chapter 2. This man, right? This man now that comes to Jesus is one of the men that Jesus knew because he knows all men and he had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. And this is what we have here now, a testimony from this man regarding Jesus. What Jesus is telling us, particularly in verse 3, what we'll see is a universal need that we have. All men, all women, children, every, every person has one need above all. is the first and most important need. We must be born from above. We must be regenerated to be saved. Next week, we'll see what happens what it is and how it happens, regeneration. So what happens in regeneration? What is regeneration? We'll cover that mostly today, I think, and how it happens. So what happens and how it happens next week. Uh, I can give you a summary, though, so that you're not, you know, not paying attention because you're worried about those other questions. The whole, so new life, of a supernatural nature is imparted in the new birth. And how it happens is the Holy Spirit gives life, causing a person to believe in Jesus. That's what happens. The Holy Spirit gives supernatural life, enabling, giving the ability to a person to believe. All men are born dead in trespasses and sins. And Nicodemus becomes an excellent example of this. You know why? Because if Nicodemus was living today, he'd be, he'd be the head of the deacon board. He'd be the most exemplary Christian person you could come across. And Jesus says to him, you must be born again. So first we have the man. Look at verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus comes up two more times in this gospel. He's not mentioned in the other gospels. The people try to, try to tie him to particular historical figures in Jesus' day. Uh, but... What we have of Nicodemus is now he's coming to Jesus in the cloak of darkness in light of this statement in chapter 2 that Jesus knows the heart of all men to, to make a declaration 
to say something to Jesus about what he knows when Jesus knows what Nicodemus needs more than Nicodemus himself knows. But he comes up in chapter 7. Look in chapter 7, verse 50. Chapter 7, verse 50. Here we have the Jewish authorities are gathered together. We have the chief priests, the Pharisees. They're there. And Nicodemus speaks up. He says, and John, every time now, two times Nicodemus is referred to, he adds this himself. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, being one of the religious leaders, said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him or knows what he is doing? So you, now, now you have Nicodemus sort of uh, speaking up for Jesus. But not only does he do this, in chapter 19, after the crucifixion, in chapter 19, verse 39, Nicodemus comes up again. Chapter 19, verse 39. After the crucifixion, 1939. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. So as it were, he comes to Jesus at night, and then he steps out of that veil of darkness and identifies as a disciple of Jesus. But here when Jesus is talking to him in John chapter 3, he makes it explicitly clear that Nicodemus must be born again. He must be born again. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And the, Pharisee the Pharisees were one of the most influential religious groups, religious parties of that time. And in Judaism, they were really the, the, the prominent leaders with reference to the study of the Word of God, knowledge of the Word of God, and actually believing the Word of God. They were very zealous adherents of the Old Testament law, so much so that they added laws to the laws so they could keep the laws. And they had tons of traditions, but they were they were closer to to you know to to genuine believers because uh, the the Sadducees, uh, as a way of comparisons, didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in bodily resurrection. They only held to a particular part of the Torah, depending on what kind of uh, excuse me, Sadducee Sadducee you were. So the Pharisees, they, they had a, a, a biblical concept of the canon of the Old Testament. They had a biblical concept of angels, the resurrection of the body, biblical inspiration. And there's a, there's a bit of, um, of debate over what their name actually means. But more than likely, it is drawn from the Hebrew word, which means to separate. They were separatists. They are those who kept themselves legally pure according to their customs. And they had a number of scruples. They were not like the people of the land. They were very, very religious. And uh, we know people like this today, right? People who, you, you know, they... they uh, they carry a New King James Bible or ESV or whatever is the version that's preferred by people today. And, you know, uh, today to be a Christian, right, if, if you look out at the Internet, you know, you, you have to look a particular way. Maybe you wear a certain kind of hairstyle or you have tattoos, right, like, you know, something in Hebrew or, you know, some the sign of the Trinity on your forearm or whatever, right? They, they, he, he exemplified religion, and there are many that exemplify religion. But he was much more than just, so, so like today, you know, he would have been like a Reformed Baptist. That's what he would have been, picking on myself. Right? He would have been in this club, this exclusive club. And he was a ruler of the Jews or a member of the ruling council. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the highest 
legislative and legal judicial body among the Jewish people. He was important. So he just wasn't your average Jewish believer. He had some, some prominence. In Luke, excuse me, in chapter 7 of John, verses 47 through 49, uh, we read this, particularly in verse 48. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? You see, they had a particular role to rule, to lead the people. They were in charge. And Nicodemus is called by Jesus. He, Jesus asks him clearly, he says, Are you not the teacher of the Jews? Preeminent in his learning and understanding. That's in uh, verse 10 of chapter 3. Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Uh, religiosity can just mean that you're lost. Being very religious can mean that you're on your way to hell. It doesn't guarantee that you're going to heaven. Being religious. If, if there was anybody that was religious, it was Nicodemus. So this is something that we have to be careful about. Right? Because we know the language of Christianity, Right? Maybe you've memorized the Apostles' Creed or you know you can uh, recite the gospel. Maybe you, were, you grew up in a home where your parents catechized you and you know a ton of catechism questions or you did sword drills and you have a bunch of memory verses memorized. You, you, know, you, you grew up in chorus and in worship teams so you know a bunch of Christian songs and you have the voice of an angel it doesn't mean anything. Those things can be to your benefit, but they can also be a detriment. They can keep you from understanding the need for redemption because you have a form of religion. These things can become an impediment instead of an assistance. Right? Have you ever tried, you know, when you're, uh, you don't have a broken limb, let's say a leg, you don't have a broken leg, have you ever tried to use crutches? It's like the most impossible thing in the world, right? They don't help. And that is what religiosity can be. It's just extra stuff that keeps you from understanding the gospel. So, you know, when, when we're preaching the gospel here, we're not calling you to be religious. I don't want you to be religious. You must be born again. Now look at verse 2. So we have the man. This was the man. He was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the people. He was very prestigious, very honored. So those things can, can, those things can mean that you're not going to heaven. Next, listen to his testimony. This man came to Jesus by night. There's a little bit more of a description here. And said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Hey, imagine that you're at work, you know. You're, you're, you're eating lunch. The new guy or gal walks in. And, hey, how you doing? Doing well. What would you do this weekend? You asked them, what did they do? Oh, we went to church, and we sang, and we prayed to Jesus, and the preacher preached the best sermon I've ever heard. And I was crying and laughing and dancing. It was the best. And those testimonies mean nothing if there is no true life. He comes to Jesus by night. Now, some people make a big deal out of this. Some people think it's no deal. But John thought it was consequential because every time he mentions Nicodemus, he says he came by night. So, you know, uh, what, what I heard somebody, uh, uh, one preacher put it this way. Maybe he came at night because his wife told him to clean the, his backyard. And he just didn't have time during the day to go see Jesus, right? We don't, 
Uh, maybe he had to clean the basement, the attic, feed his sheep, or whatever he, uh, Nicodemus did with his time. Um, but I think there is some significance. Now, this reference, I think it, it, it highlights something. And I think it points to this contrast that John develops throughout his God, not only in the Gospels, but in the Epistles, and even in the book of Revelation, this contrast between the light and the darkness. So John says things like these. So what I don't want to make is I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill, but there's significance is the point. And John says things like these in John chapter 9, verse 4. I must work, John chapter 9, verse 4. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. So there's a contrast between light and darkness, day and night. Look at chapter 11. Verse 10. I'll read from verse 9, but the reference is in 10. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, but he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. You see, uh, even there, it's pretty clear that Jesus himself, in his preaching and teaching, used, the, the, used the, the, this imagery, or you could call it a motif if you want to sound, you know, important. He uses this motif to describe unconverted people and converted people. He uses it in his gospel. One more place, 1330. Here, this is uh, Judas. Having received the piece of bread, he went out immediately, and it was night. Judas goes out now into the darkness, and Judas never comes out of the darkness. So again, maybe his wife just had him clean the chicken. Were chickens? I don't know. I can't remember right now. Chickens were unclean animals. May he tend to the sheep, right? Maybe he had to go tend to the sheep or whatever. But it appears to me that John develops these contrasts, these motifs in his gospel on purpose. And it tells us something about Nicodemus' spiritual condition. If it doesn't do that, it at least makes it very clear that he was afraid of public association with Jesus. He was coming for a lengthy discussion, and he says some things that are positive, but he was ashamed to be with Jesus. This is, this can be a mark of, it can be a mark of weak faith, right? Or it, but it can also be a mark of no faith, where there's this embarrassment or like this overwhelming shame that comes upon you. I'm not talking about human disposition, because we each are, you know, we have different dispositions. And there are people who are very talkative and, you know, you know they, can, they can communicate well and they don't have any problem talking either to groups of people or to individuals. What I'm talking about here is the inclination and disposition when you do have the opportunity to say something about the Lord and there is just an unwill, I don't want to be embarrassed. Like, man, if he's, you know, say something during lunch, I might not have a job after lunch, or whatever it might be, this disposition, this shame, or just being embarrassed about talking or identifying with Jesus. Can be weak faith, can be no faith. You see, after this discussion where Jesus makes it very clear to Nicodemus what Nicodemus's need is, Nicodemus is very vocal, and so much so that even at his crucifixion, he goes and he takes care of the body of Jesus. Isaiah makes it very clear in Isaiah 51.7. He says, listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law, 
Do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults. You should welcome it. I don't, I don't, I'm, maybe this comes with getting old too, right? But I don't really care what my neighbors think about me, you know? Like I'm not, it doesn't bother me. I, I don't care, right, what uh, the people here think about me, right? If what I am doing is explaining the Bible, being faithful to what the text teaches, I really have no concern what others think about me. And you shouldn't either. Do not be afraid of their insults. They're worthless. In Isaiah 42, 3, it says this, though. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. Jesus doesn't rebuff Nicodemus, though. Like he doesn't say to Nicodemus, you've said something about me that I don't agree with. Get out of here. So for those of you who are sitting here today listening to this, Jesus doesn't rebuff you. Jesus calls you to repent of that sin and to come to him. That's his desire, right? His desire, when Nicodemus comes, and it appears that Nicodemus has a, there's, there is some honesty in his religiosity but he just does not know rightly the way to God. Jesus doesn't push him away, though. Jesus explains to him his greatest need. If you go back to John 3, he says of Jesus, a rabbi, which is not like when his disciples call him rabbi, because Nicodemus is a rabbi. He is a teacher. He's a Pharisee. He's in the highest courts. And now he comes to Jesus and he calls Jesus a teacher. He's right in calling Jesus a teacher. Nicodemus knew Pharisee. the scriptures, He's in the- right? So he knew passages like this. Look at Joel. This is a, look at Joel chapter 2. Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Joel chapter 2. I'll read from verse 21. Joel chapter 2, 21. It says, Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up. The fruit bears its fruit, excuse me, the tree bears its fruit, and the fig tree and the vine yield their strength. The Lord, in the midst of difficulty, he does amazing things, right? And what Nicodemus sees is the signs, and he knows that these signs are not ordinary signs. These are things that God does. I'll continue reading. Be glad, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you, and you see that where it says former rains? Um, that, sometimes, some of you may have a, a note there. He has given you teachers of righteousness. That that former reign faithfully can be interposed and teachers of righteousness. And he will cause rain to come down for you. The former rain, the latter rain, the first moon. So Joel can be taken this way. The Lord will do very amazing and wonderful things. He causes amazing and wonderful things to happen among you. Uh, Nicodemus saw this. The text can also refer to teachers, that God will give you faithful teachers. And in both instances, this is what, uh, either instance, this is what Nicodemus sees. He sees God working through Jesus. Yet the way that he addressed, so uh, turn back to John. So he says, Rabbi, he calls him a teacher. He acknowledges 
that Jesus is a teacher of righteousness. He himself being a teacher of righteousness. John chapter 3. And he continues to say good things. He says to Jesus, We know that you are a teacher come from God. And you would think to yourself, you know, well, that, that's good, right? I, uh, Nicodemus is saying, I accept on the basis of the things that you're doing that you've come from God. Yet this is not unique to Christ. So Christ taught, unlike other men, you have many occasions where the people say things like, he teaches like no other person. But what Nicodemus is focusing on is not his teaching per se, but the miracles that he's done. But doing miracles is not unique to Christ. We learn later in the Bible that the Antichrist and false prophets do signs and wonders. In the book of Deuteronomy, the people are warned of prophets who do false signs when when Moses is in the land of Egypt, he works signs and wonders, and the magicians there kind of compete with him. Ultimately, his signs are greater and true. They're not deceptive. You know, He's not, uh, what's the guy's name, David Blair or whatever his name is? Uh, whatever. He's not that guy, right? He's not doing illusions. These are real miracles. But this is not specific to Jesus. The Old Te- many of the Old Testament prophets, they worked wonders. They were sent from God. So although this sounds like he is exalting Christ, he's giving him a a high status, he's really not saying more about Jesus than you're like John the Baptist. 2.0 with some magic. For Nicodemus, the signs meant that Jesus was a great teacher. And he approached Jesus well-intentioned, but his theology was inadequate. He had failed, really, to grasp who Jesus was. Our opinion of Jesus cannot be more than he's just a good, we might not even say it this way, you know, but he's a good religious teacher. But the way that we we live our lives can indicate that. So you can identify as a Christian, but the way that you live is not in line with who Jesus says he is in the Bible. He is our Lord and our God. The power of the signs, I believe that you are a teacher come from God, but this was not accurate. He did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He did not believe in the unique unity and essence of the Son with the Father and with the Spirit. He just thought it was an infusion of grace, that God has given this guy some powers, not that he was God in the flesh, working these wonders because he is God. Elijah worked wonders. Elisha worked wonders. They were not on par with Jesus. So we can have a confession like this. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Yet we can have no idea who Christ truly is. You see, you had the man who was this prestigious religious leader among the people. And, you know, to human eyes, we see people like this. Or maybe we think of ourselves, we look in the mirror and we say, well, I'm I'm okay with God. I'm a religious, prestigious person. I'm a nice guy or gal. And then when I do you know, in private quarters with other people of, who are like-minded with me, 
you know, I say grandioso things about Jesus and about God and about Christianity. And, you know, I'm a conservative and I voted for Donald Trump. So that means I'm going to heaven. I don't think you will. I mean, let, let me not. So, um, but those things, really, uh, what Nicodemus said was inadequate. His statements about the Messiah, what he confessed, was inadequate. So Jesus replies now. Jesus replies. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So he says to Jesus, I know something. And Jesus says, well, I know something greater and of more importance. This reply can seem a little bit out of place, right? It seems kind of weird, you know? He comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know nobody could do these things. We know that you come from God. And Jesus says to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It seems almost like, is Jesus having another discussion here that we don't know about? Of course, the statements in chapter 2, verses 24 through 25 come into play particularly at verse 24, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. He didn't, he didn't grab Nicodemus and give him a big hug and a kiss on his neck. He didn't commit himself to Nicodemus. Why? Because he knew what was in man, and he needed no one should testify of man. He knew what Nicodemus's problem was. So he says, verily, verily, most assuredly. This, uh, so Nicodemus makes this positive assertion, and Jesus' reply seems completely foreign. And Jesus is, in essence, saying this. You don't need facts. Right? You need life. You, know, you don't need learning. You need to live. You need to be made alive by God. That's what Jesus' point is. You're coming to me as a religious leader. I think the term hypocrite would be too harsh for Nicodemus because there seems a genuineness, but he is genuinely confused. So he says to him, most assuredly, verily, verily. You need more than learning. You need life to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus, you know, to elaborate, it's, it's as if he were saying, it's, it's no surprise to me that you think about me as some ordinary man or as some prophet in line with all of the other prophets. It doesn't surprise me. Because you need spiritual eyes to see who I really am. You need a new birth to know who I am. And this teaching is just replete throughout the scriptures. This is uh, an inadequate understanding, of course, of who Christ is. And this verily, verily, is frequently used by Christ in this gospel. Look, in chapter, uh, same chapter, verse 5. He says, most assuredly, that's verily, verily. And then again in verse 11, most assuredly, verily, verily. This is a solemn truth. Pay close attention, Nicodemus. You must be born from above. This is synonymous with Entering the kingdom. So in verse 5, when Jesus, in essence, repeats himself and he, he, he adds more information, most assuredly, in verse 5, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what it means to be born from above, to be born of water and the Spirit. And I'll tell you what that is next week. 
water and the Spirit, what he's referring to there. But he's saying you must be born from above to enter the kingdom. And this above language, this is the most common uh, above. So in most versions, it says something like, again, you must be born again. But above is the most common way that this particular Greek word is used, this expression. It should be translated born from above. That should be the way to take it. And Nicodemus completely misunderstands Jesus. He thinks born again, a sec, like born a second time, completely misunderstanding what Jesus is saying. So Jesus elaborates and says this about the Spirit, born of water and the Spirit. And no, he's not talking about baptism when he says that. This birth from above, of course, means you must be born of God. You must be born of God. This birth from above conveys the same idea as born from the Spirit. And there's a contrast here. Nicodemus is a Jew of Jews. He is a son of Abraham according to the flesh. And Jesus says that counts for nothing. You must be born of the Spirit. And there's a contrast here, which is subtle, but it is between flesh and spirit. The car- Nicodemus' carnal accomplishments cannot grant him access to the kingdom of God. He is wholly dependent upon the Spirit of God to give him life. This is what Nicodemus needs. Nicodemus needs New life. He needs to be born of God. There must be a, there, there, there is a huge chasm. And to cross it, God must work. And Calvin puts it this way. He says, we are born exiles and utterly alienated from the kingdom of God. And that there is a perpetual state of variance between God and us until he makes us altogether different by being born again. For the statement is general and comprehends the whole of the human race. When Jesus said you must be born again, he is not only talking to Nicodemus, but he is talking to every single person in the world. Every single person in this room. You must be born again. And guess what? I said this last Sunday, I think. We, we, we don't born ourselves again. We don't do that. I wasn't involved in my first birth. As I said before, I just showed up. Right? I was, hey, I'm here. And th- this is the same thing with the new birth. So in Ephesians 2.1... Paul says, and he made you alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. If you're not a Christian, you are dead in trespasses and sins. Dead people don't come to life. Only on TV shows or when Jesus is around. You are not born again or born from above because you believe. You believe because you were born from above. You see, it's not faith. Your faith doesn't open the doors to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus imparts life by the spirit under the preaching of the gospel. And you believe. In Titus 3 verse 5, it says this. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Just count works of righteousness, any kind of work of righteousness, anything that you think that is good, or even, we can, let's use biblical categories. Anything the Bible says is a good work doesn't get you to heaven. But according to his mercy, he saved us. How, Paul? Through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit, through the new birth, from above. 
we read James in the Sunday school class. James puts it this way in James 1.18. Of his will, he brought us forth. Of my will, of his will. According to his will, in agreement with his sovereign purpose, which is immutable, he gave us life. According by the word of truth. So this is, this is getting into um, how a little bit, but you have to with this passage. So how are people born again? How? how? Through the preaching of the gospel. Through reading the gospel, through hearing the gospel in any way. That's how God gives life to people. By the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creation. First fruits, whether that, that, that this is the same idea as being born again or born from above. God makes men new under the preaching of the word by the power of the Spirit. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Verses 23 through 25, we have this. And all I'm doing is I'm elaborating. I mean, I'm just using, using scriptural support to prove that what Jesus is saying is we don't make ourselves alive. You don't have the power. You're not willing and you're not able of yourself to become a Christian. God must save you. And the way that he saves you is by imparting life through the Spirit, under the preaching of His Word. You have to come in contact with the Gospel. And when you come in contact with the Gospel, the Spirit uses that to open your eyes to see. It's not historical facts, right? Ten reasons why Jesus was raised from the dead. You know, I was a reporter, and I didn't believe in the Bible, and then I learned all these facts, and I became a Christian. No, you didn't. That's not what happened. You're not, that person might be a Christian, right? But they're not explaining what happened properly. What happened was the gospel. You, the Spirit of God used the gospel of God to give life. So 1 Peter 1, 23 through 25. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. So there is a there's this incorruptible seed implanted in the heart. What is it? Through the word of God which lives and abides forever. So this incorruptible seed is given in the preaching of the gospel. That is how these men and women were born again as it says I think in verse 3 or 4 to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. Then he quotes the Old Testament. He says, because all flesh is grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass, the grass wither and the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. The contrast here again is flesh and spirit or flesh and the word. Man cannot endure forever on his own strength and ability to receive eternal life. The word of God must be used by the Spirit of God to impart life. Now this is the word by the gospel, excuse me. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. It's, it's the gospel that imparts life spirit uses to impart life to men and women who are dead that's a point he's making here so listen to how jesus back in john chapter 3 look at verse 14 and we'll come back to verse 14 we'll come back to all of these verses again for some period of time but look at verse 14 he says and 
as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him but have eternal life. It's looking upon the sun, seeing the sun. And how, do, how are people able, how are they made able to see? By the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God works faith. This is the same language that's used. Look at verse 16, of course. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. You see that, that whoever believes in him that should should be could be should be translated that all the believing ones all the ones who believe all the ones who are born from above all of the ones whom the spirit has given life that they might be saved so in Jesus's discussion with Nicodemus what does he bring out for us what what, what is this point our religious affiliations, our religious standing, our personal righteousness, our confessions, our statements, the things that we say about God, things that we do about God, those things do not get us into heaven. We cannot even see the kingdom of God if we are not born from above. This means that our salvation does not depend upon ourselves. And I don't mean like justification, sanctification, glorification. I mean initially. To enter into the kingdom of God, I have no power to get into that kingdom. I can't break the door down. God has to give me life so that I can enter. God has to give me life so that I believe. I don't make myself believe. I am completely cast upon the mercy of God. I have no other way to escape hell. I cannot enter the kingdom of heaven based upon anything that I personally do. It's impossible. For some, that can be absolutely like crippling and i would say that's good you should despair that way because in despairing that you can't do anything who would i point you to to myself no to the cross to god who remember what did we just read in god's providence and in his timing what did what did we read about god from micah what did we read? What did, what, were, what did we hear with regards to God in the book of Micah? It's in Micah chapter 7. Let me pull it up here. In Micah chapter 7, we hear this. It was during the Lord's Supper. In Micah chapter 7, we read these words. In there. So let me just look for it. It was in the book of Micah. This is Micah, yes, Micah chapter 7. And it's in verse 18. Micah 7, 18. So if you're sitting, you're sitting and you're thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute. What, what you're saying is that I am dependent, and this is exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying you're dependent upon the Holy Spirit to believe. The Holy Spirit has to give you life. You don't believe and then become a Christian. You are born again, therefore you believe. The, the, the spiritual equivalent of a crying baby when they're born, the spiritual equivalent is repentance and faith. And you can think to yourself, well, if there's nothing I could do, you don't become a fatalist. You don't do that. Because consider the one who saves. Verse 18, who is like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the, of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever. 
because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. I don't want my eternal existence to be in anyone else's hands. I wouldn't even want it to be in my own hands. I want it to be in this God's hands, who is full of mercy and compassion and grace and forgives abundantly to the uttermost so that my sins in his presence are not even a thing. He casts them into the deep. So, uh, you know... uh, People, what, uh, what, so if people want to categorize what I'm saying, right, they will say, well, that's just Calvinism, right? That's what they would say. And I don't take that as a dirty word. I am a Calvinist. But I'm not a Calvinist because of John Calvin. I'm a Calvinist. This is anachronistic because Jesus was. He says, you must be born again. And we don't do that. God does that. But who else are we going to entrust our souls to? And he tells us how he imparts life. He does it under the preaching of the gospel, by the power of his spirit. So what should be our duty then? If if you want to be made alive, what do you do? I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to sit under biblical preaching because I know those are the means God uses to impart life. That's why we read the Bible so much. That's why we structure our service the way that we do. Because apart from the Spirit working, we are dead in trespasses and sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we praise you, Lord, for making it absolutely clear that we are completely dependent upon you for everything, Lord. Not only for our uh, creaturely existence, but for our spiritual life. So we ask, Lord, that you would work among us by the power of your word, not only to give life, Lord, but to sustain and to preserve and to make it fruitful for your glory and our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.